Romans chapter 1, we begin in verse 14 where Paul writes, I am debtor both to the Greeks and to the barbarians, both to the wise and to the unwise. So as much as in me is, I am ready to preach the gospel to you that are at Rome also. For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believeth, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For therein is the righteousness of God revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, the just shall live by faith. And if you look ahead into chapter 8, Romans chapter 8, We'll read a section here beginning in verse 11. But if the spirit of him that raised up Jesus from the dead dwell in you, he that raised up Christ from the dead shall also quicken your mortal bodies by his spirit that dwelleth in you. Therefore, brethren, we are debtors not to the flesh, to live after the flesh, for if ye, after the f if ye live after the flesh, ye shall die. But if ye through the Spirit do mortify the deeds of the body, ye shall live. For as many as are led by the Spirit of God, they are the sons of God. For ye have not received the spirit of bondage again to fear, but ye have received the spirit of adoption, whereby we cry, Abba, Father, the Spirit itself beareth witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. And then chapter 15. Near the end of the book. And we'll begin here also in verse 11. And again praise the Lord all ye Gentiles and laud him all ye people. And again, Isaiah saith, there shall be a root of Jesse, and he shall rise to reign over the Gentiles. In him shall the Gentiles trust. Now the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing, that ye may abound in hope through the power of the Holy Ghost. And I myself am persuaded of you, my brethren, that ye also are full of goodness, filled with all knowledge, able to admonish one another, Nevertheless, brethren, I have written the more boldly unto you in some sort as putting you in mind because of the grace that is given to me of God that I should be the minister of Jesus Christ to the Gentiles, ministering the gospel of God that the offering up of the Gentiles might be acceptable, being sanctified by the Holy Ghost. Amen. We'll end our reading with that text in chapter 15. We know the Lord will add his blessing to the reading of his word for his name's sake. Paul's epistle to the Romans is without doubt the most thorough and systematic exposition of the gospel in all the Bible. I recommend to uh, anyone who is unfamiliar with the Bible, who wants to get the cliff notes, so to speak, you want the Bible within a Bible, I say go to Romans, where the whole thing really is condensed and yet somewhat comprehensive there. 
In order for a Christian to understand the gospel with any appreciable depth of understanding, I think it becomes very necessary for us to apply ourselves to the study of this epistle by Paul. I found it amazing some while back in the course of my studies of this epistle that there was actually some disagreement among some commentators as to what the theme of the book ought to be. Some have suggested the theme ought to be the righteousness of God. And certainly that is an emphasis in the book. And those that hold that that is the theme will point out that the word righteousness occurs some 35 times in the book. And if you look at other derivatives of that word righteousness, you'll find many more occurrences of it in the book. So there certainly is in uh, this epistle an emphasis on righteousness. Others have suggested that the theme of the book ought to be justification by faith. And again, I think you could perhaps build an argument for that. But I think you can become even more concise by defining the theme of the book to be simply the gospel. And the gospel, after all, is the gospel of justification by faith. I think that the best approach that needs to be taken in the study of Romans is not just to uh, look for the theme or to memorize certain verses. We went over some some while back. You may recall we actually did a study of what is sometimes called the Romans Road, where you have these particular verses sprinkled throughout the gospel uh, that a believer does well to have ready at hand, especially when it comes to witnessing. Uh, if you would like those verses, let me know. I can find them for you quickly. I think there is something even more valuable than that, however, and that is to follow Paul's reasoning, his argument through this epistle through the Romans. He begins, you see, with the guilt of mankind. The heathen, he says, are condemned by the law of their conscience, that law being stamped on their hearts by God himself, so that they're without excuse. You ever heard the objection raised to the gospel? What about those that haven't heard of Jesus? What about those who uh, are not exposed to the gospel? Will they be judged by the gospel? To which I would hasten to say, no, they won't. They won't be judged by something that they don't have. But what Paul makes very clear in the opening chapter of Romans is that there is something that they do have. They have the law of God stamped on their heart. And being judged by that law, they shall be condemned. They have a knowledge of God. Not a perfect knowledge, but certainly a knowledge they have a knowledge that he's the creator. They have the knowledge intuitively that they're accountable to him. And like I say, that law is stamped on their hearts and they've violated that law. So they're guilty. And then Paul goes on to another category of people to demonstrate that the moral man, the Jew in particular, is also condemned 
by the revealed law of God. He has more than the law of conscience. He has the oracles that were committed to the people of God. He knows so much more than the heathen, but like the heathen, he sins against what he knows. And so for two and a half chapters, Paul labors the point to establish the guilt of every conceivable person in the world. The world is guilty before God, bar none, no exceptions. And you know, this is perhaps the hardest point and the easiest one to overlook when it comes to our witness for Christ. Not too difficult to attempt to present Christ as a good friend or Christ, the provider of abundant life, or Christ who loved the world and gave himself for the world's salvation. Not too hard to present him in those settings, but to look upon him and present him as the Savior of sinners becomes more of a daunting task. But only after Paul has thoroughly expounded man's guilt does he begin the positive exposition of the gospel, which begins in chapter 3 and verse 21, where we read, But now the righteousness of God without the law is manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, and again in chapter 3, verse 28, Therefore we conclude that a man is justified by faith without or outside of the deeds of the law. And the emphasis here is that a sinner can be declared righteous apart from the law, apart from the law that he's failed to fulfill, apart from the law that he has transgressed time and again, there is a way for a sinner to be declared just by God without any reference to his breaking of the law. And yet, and this is the marvel of the gospel, the gospel is in accordance with God's righteousness. God hasn't compromised his righteousness in order to bring salvation to the guilty sinner. Paul next demonstrates how God can justly declare a sinner to be righteous without any reference to that sinner's merit or demerit. And how can that be done? How can God justify a sinner? That becomes something we really need to know for the sake of our own peace as well as our ability to communicate the gospel. And the answer is given in chapter 3, verses 24 and 25 through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God has set forth to be a propitiation through faith in his blood to declare his righteousness. Rather interesting, isn't it? Christ set forth to be a propitiation, and this serves the purpose of declaring not his grace or his mercy or his love, though it does, in a sense, I suppose, declare all those things, but it declares his righteousness. And this is what gives the gospel credibility. God hasn't sacrificed his righteousness. Christ, our propitiation, you see, is the appeaser of God's wrath. That's the meaning of Christ, our propitiation. So as a preacher, I must declare that God will judge sin. But the good news is that God has judged sin. 
And that's really the meaning of Christ being our propitiation. Our judgment fell upon him. He propitiated or appeased the wrath of God, satisfying divine justice. If you're a believer today and you've been pardoned, you've been pardoned because Christ was judged in your place. God has not skirted the issue of judgment in order to pardon you, but God rather sent one to bear that judgment in your place. The fury of God's wrath fell upon him. And this is why God can be merciful to you without compromising his justice. Through the gospel, and Paul emphasizes it, emphasizes it saying it twice, God declares his righteousness for the remission of sins that are past you, the forbearance of God. To declare, I say at this time, he repeats it, his righteousness that he might be just and the justifier of him which believeth in Jesus. That's in chapter 3, verses 25 and 26. Now, continuing the survey analysis, after dealing with some anticipated objections to the gospel, Paul then goes on to declare the blessed results of this glorious gospel. We are freed from the law's condemnation, or to use Paul's phrase, saved from wrath through him, chapter 5 and verse 9. We are freed from the bondage of sin and Satan, for he that is dead is freed from sin, Chapter 6 and verse 7. For sin shall not have dominion over you, for ye are not under the law, but under grace. Chapter 6 and verse 14. So we're secure in a perfect standing of righteousness before God for time and eternity by virtue of our union to Jesus Christ. Okay, we are secure in a perfect standing because Christ is secure in a perfect standing and we're joined to him. We are at peace with God and we enjoy access to God because we've been justified by faith. I love the way Paul expresses it in chapter 5 and verse 1. Therefore, being justified by faith, we have peace with God. And I like to point out to people that unless you can understand the connection between salvation and God's justice, you won't really enjoy that peace because the gospel really won't be credible to your heart. We know that the God of all the universe must do right. We know that he will not compromise or lay aside the standard of his law. But being justified by faith, understanding how uh, salvation relates to God's justice, enables us to be at peace with God. Surely such blessed results of the gospel describe our liberty or our freedom, freedom from the dread of God's wrath, freedom from the dominion of sin, and freedom from the debt of sin. I can remember several years ago while I was a student down at Bob Jones. Wasn't easy to keep up on the school bill while trying to work and get through college. And there were times when that financial debt seemed to be a little overwhelming. 
fact, I didn't have a straight course through. There was one semester I had to take off just to pay down that debt sum. It was a large financial debt, but I can remember consoling myself during those days by saying, I have an even larger debt than that. And that's a debt that has been paid, paid in full. It's the sin debt. I would go so far as to say the sin debt exceeds even our national debt, if you can imagine that. And that debt climbs so fast that we can't even keep up or calculate the number of it. And yet we have a debt that is as great, even greater, which is the sin debt. All other debts really peel into insignificance in comparison to how large that debt was. How unusual then for the Apostle Paul, who knew and could expound this glorious freedom from sin's debt, to make such statements as what we find in chapter 1 and verse 14, where Paul says, I am a debtor. And in chapter 8 and verse 14, he says, Therefore, brethren, we are debtors. And in chapter 15, in verse 27, and I didn't read far enough in our reading, but in verse 27 of chapter 15, we read, It hath pleased them verily, and their debtors they are. With reference to a debt that Paul is saying the Gentiles owed to the Jews. I am a debtor, therefore, brethren, we are debtors. And it hath pleased them verily, and there debtors they are. And these verses teach us that while the gospel releases us from debt, it also carries with it a debt of its own. And it's important for us to note that debt, especially in a day when it's so popular and common to shrug off any responsibility for anything or to anyone. Think for a moment on the magnitude of God's grace to you. We go to Christ again and again for forgiveness of sins, and we attain it because we read that where sin abounded, grace did much more abound. So we gain forgiveness every time we need it and ask for it. We plead for grace against our hard hearts, against our lukewarmness. We plead for grace against wasted opportunities. And thank God, His grace abounds. But brothers and sisters in Christ, let's not forget that like Paul, we have acquired a debt in the process, which is a debt to grace because of this grace that comes fully and freely. So we acquire a debt to that grace. So what I would like to do this afternoon, and we'll only just get started on the study, I only want to cover one point this afternoon from these three sections we read from, that you may understand this afternoon something of the nature of the debt and that you might gain knowledge as to how we pay this debt I would invite you to think with me for just a few moments on the debts of a justified sinner. The debts of a justified sinner.
And let's think, first of all, and this will be my first and my last point, only want to cover the first one, it is perhaps the longest one of the three. Consider our debt to the world. We owe a debt to the world. Look with me, chapter 1, verse 14, where Paul writes, I am debtor. And you see this debt we're talking about is a debt that we share with Paul. He says, I am debtor both to the Greeks and to the barbarians, both to the wise and to the unwise, he writes. What an unusual debt Paul is confessing here. Ordinarily, for a person to acquire a debt, there must be some sort of correspondence with another party during which that party supplies something to the person for which he becomes indebted. But Paul says he's a debtor to the Greeks, or in other words, he's a debtor to the highly cultured and educated segments of that society. And isn't it ironic that for all their culture and philosophy, they could add nothing to Paul for which he could become indebted to them? What did he gain from their wisdom? By their wisdom, they didn't know God. The world by wisdom knew not God. The Greek philosophers by their wisdom didn't know God. Well, what did they add to Paul then that would bring Paul into their debt? The best they can do, and we see this in the book of Acts, that the best they could do was erect an altar that acknowledged that God was unknown to them. An altar to the unknown God to go along with all the false gods that they erected altars to. So how could Paul be indebted to them? And if the Greeks or the wise men, the, philosoph the philosophers of the day, added nothing to Paul, how much less did the barbarians, as they're called in that verse, or in other words, the, the unwise, the foreigners, the non-Greek-speaking segment of society? We have an example of that category of people in Acts chapter 14. You might recall in that chapter that we have the account of Paul healing a man at the city of Lystra. And following that miracle, we read how the people in their own tongue proclaim, the gods have come down to us. And they take Barnabas to be Jupiter, and they take Paul to be Mercury. And you may recall from that chapter how Paul and Barnabas had to exert great effort to restrain the barbarians, so to speak, from offering sacrifice to them. And yet you remember the account that when the troublemaking Jews arrived on the scene, they were able to incite these same barbarians to take the Apostle Paul and to stone him so as to leave him for dead. Quite a contrast, isn't it, when you think about it, from being regarded as a god to being stoned as a criminal in the space of such a short time. And yet, as Paul tells us in our text in Romans, he was a debtor to those kinds of people too. Well, I think we can figure out that this debt Paul owed was a debt not so much to the people 
directly, but indirectly. The real debt was and is owed to God. And yet, I think we could argue that God is pleased to transfer this debt to all the unsaved world. And let me point out to you that this is a debt that we all owe. It's a debt to the lost, in other words. We owe them the gospel. And there is in this debt to communicate the gospel really a recognition of our common humanity, or indeed we could say further, a recognition of our common depravity with men of all classes. We would do well when we are abhorred by the atrocities of sin to remember that apart from God's saving grace, we would condone and engage in the very same sin. We share then a common humanity and depravity with sinners. There is also in this death the recognition of God's purpose to save all kinds of sinners. I won't take the time to read it for you just now, but the next time you have occasion to read Psalm 107, Look at that psalm and analyze it in terms of the categories of sinners that can be found there. And you'll find that there are wandering sinners who drift aimlessly through life. There are darkened and rebellious sinners who sit in the darkness and are bound in the iron affliction of sin. And there are foolish sinners who go against the deepest law of their conscience by living as if God didn't see their sin. Surely everyone here, either now or at some time, has fit into one or more of those categories. We've been darkened sinners. We've been foolish sinners. We've been wandering and rebellious sinners along the course of our lives. And alas, how prone we are, I'm afraid, to forsake our debt of giving out the gospel to sinners in these categories because what we deem to be the unlikelihood of that sinner ever being saved. Well, not so with the Apostle Paul. We find in him an eagerness to pay the debt. Look at verse 15 again, chapter 1. So as much as in me is, I am ready to preach the gospel to you that are at Rome also. Underscore that word, ready. It's a word that is really comprised of two Greek words, a compound word, the word forward and the word mind. You could read it, I am of a forward mind to preach the gospel to you that are at Rome also. One version translates it eager. I am eager to preach the gospel to you who are at Rome. The amplified version reads like this. I am eagerly ready to preach the gospel to you that are at Rome. The phrase describes Paul's disposition, his eagerness to pay what he acknowledges is his debt. He was always looking for an opportunity to pay that debt. He considered it his greatest joy to pay that debt. And I would suggest to you that we must ever be watchful for opportunities to pay that debt as well. 
Look with me in chapter 15, if you would, still in Romans. Romans 15, we look at verse 19, where Paul says, Through mighty signs and wonders, by the power of the Spirit of God, so that from Jerusalem and round about Illyricum I have fully preached the gospel of Christ. Yea, so have I strived to preach the gospel, not where Christ was named, lest I should build upon another man's foundation. And then look down at verse 23. But now having no more place in these parts, and having a great desire these many years to come unto you, whensoever I take my journey into Spain, I will come to you. Having no more place in these parts. You see the great zeal through which Paul paid his debt? He couldn't find any other place to pay it. I've taken the gospel to every conceivable place I can, he's saying in effect. Oh, that God would instill in our hearts such an eagerness to pay this debt that the truth of our own justification would so grip us that we would find, like Paul, an energy within that could not be restrained. And you know, that's really what it boils down to at the end of the day. If I have the sense of my own salvation, if I have it stamped on my heart by the Spirit of God that I really am justified, that my sins are forgiven, that I do have a home in heaven, that everlasting life is my portion, there will arise within my breast a motivation that will have to find release through making the name of Jesus Christ known. It really boils down to understanding our own justification. And that becomes, I suppose, a means to meeting the obligation. If you find yourself negligent or hesitant in wanting to meet the obligation of your debt, then consider again what debt has been removed from you by the blood of Christ. You should know that with or without your heart overflowing, with the joy of the gospel, we are debtors nonetheless to give out the gospel message. So Paul wrote to the Corinthians, For though I preach the gospel, I have nothing uh, to glory of, for necessity is laid upon me. Yea, woe is unto me if I preach not the gospel. For if I do this thing willingly, I have a reward. But if against my will, a dispensation of the gospel is committed unto me. He writes in 1 Corinthians 9, verses 16 and 17. We discover from that text that as well as the motivation that sprang from the joy of the gospel, Paul also recognized and was motivated by human need. There are those that need the gospel. Whether I feel like it or not, their need is great, and that has to be an additional factor in our motivation. I'm, motiva I'm motivated by joy. I should be motivated by gratitude. But I'm also motivated by a need, as well as well, I should say, whether or not I'm feeling joy or not, the need in others is still there. So the obligation is strong, and even without either of these motivating forces, Paul expresses the motivation 
that also springs from a sense of responsibility. A dispensation or a ministry is committed or entrusted unto me, he says. So whether you're stirred by the need, whether you feel the joy of salvation or not, the fact is that God commits to us this gospel. He entrusts us with it, and that carries with it a responsibility that in spite of our emotions or our feelings, we have a debt that must be paid through the communication of this gospel. And so, brothers and sisters, I leave it with you. We have a debt, we have an obligation, we have an entrustment. We must, therefore, ever be watchful and ever seeking opportunities to pay our debt by giving out the gospel. It is a debt of gratitude. And if you're lacking in the paying of this debt, chances are it can be traceable to a lack of gratitude, which means then you, know, you need to get back to the cross. You need to get back to the truth of justification by faith, uh, ever seeking the Lord to enlighten your heart to the truth and reality of it, and when that happens, you'll just find it next to impossible to keep silent. I'm reminded of those various occasions in the gospel where Christ would perform a miracle and then tell the recipient of that miracle not to broadcast it. Keep it quiet. Don't go tell anyone. Go to the temple, maybe make the sacrifice that is called for in the law, uh, but don't broadcast it. And in most instances, whenever that happened, the person couldn't help but tell everyone Christ's admonition notwithstanding. Oh, that our own salvation would grip our souls the same way that those miracles gripped the recipients in the Gospels. In such case, we won't find it hard to ever be seeking opportunity to pay this debt. So that's one of three, okay? There are two more uh, aspects to the debts of a justified sinner that I think we will hold on to and look at next Lord's Day, Lord willing. Well, let's close then in prayer. O oh Lord, as we bow in thy presence now and bring this meeting to a close, we acknowledge a debt of gratitude to thee, a debt of gratitude that springs from so great salvation that we have come to experience. We pray, O oh Lord, that thou wilt help us to pay this debt, not by forcing doors open that are not open, but at the very least to be praying for thee to open doors for us, and then to be watchful for those opportunities to pay our debt by telling others what we know of Christ. O oh Lord, we pray that the truth and reality of justification would so fill and thrill our hearts that we share a common eagerness with Paul to pay such a debt as this. So hear our prayers in Jesus' name. Amen.